the next case, which will be uh, 22-110, In Re Purdue Pharma. Uh, and just before you get started, to let uh, remind counsel that uh, you are permitted to remove your mask uh, at the podium if you choose. And we will start with uh, the first party, which will be uh, on behalf of the debtors. And this cast of thousands, okay. Okay. And so, uh, Mr. Huber? Huber. Uh, Huber, yes. Uh, whenever you're ready. Uh, may it please the court, Marshall Huber for the fiduciary debtors. With your permission, I will address three main points in my 18 opening minutes and reserve the balance for rebuttal. First, this court's 34 years of unbroken precedent compels reversal. The district court is the only court anywhere ever to deem the legality of appropriate third-party releases unsettled in this circuit. The fiduciaries, mediators, and victims relied on this court's precedent for over three years in crafting a value-maximizing, life-saving plan. Second, even if this court could or did reconsider the legal issue anew, its precedent is firmly rooted in the code. Third, this case illustrates exactly why third-party releases are necessary in rare and unusual cases to protect the bankruptcy race and enable reorganization. Judge Strain's undisputed findings are that continued litigation of the claims at issue would, one, likely result in the liquidation of these operating debtors, two, gravely impair the estate's other critical assets. It's so, it's, so it's the significance of the settlement that drives the scope of the bankruptcy judge's authority? Your Honor, it's... I apologize. No, no. That, no. It, it, it is the impact of the third-party actions on the race of the bankruptcy estate. So the, great, the, greater, the, the greater the impact of the uh, non-debtor, uh, the greater the, the ability of the court to interfere with the rights of, of, of non-parties, parties who have no claims against the bank of themselves, perhaps, Your Honor, but interfere with claims against the non-debtor Your Honor, given a release. In this case, you have to have claims against the debtors. That's not my question. My question is, is what's the limiting principle? Your Honor, there are at least three limiting principles. Number one is the jurisdictional question, which is set forth, obviously, in many of this Court's decisions, including SPDOSIS, Quigley, and others. The second is the test you set forth in Metro Media, affirmed on page 88 of Madoff and again on page 99 of Tronox, that there is jurisdiction and authority when the race of the bankruptcy estate is affected. The decisions in Manville 1 rest on exactly that principle. And then, of course, Metromedia sets forth, while the court's exact words are, it is not a matter of factors and prongs. It said that truly unusual circumstances are necessary, and then lists several fact patterns. The impact on the estate, which in that case was a large settlement and potential insurance policies. Secondly is the issue of the substantial consideration being paid into the estate. You can't bootstrap merely by paying money. There has to be an impact on the estate. And, Your Honor, in this case, Judge Strain tailored the releases verbatim lifting words from Second Circuit case law to ensure that your concern, could there be releases about truly unrelated matters that are brought in and take away creditors' rights, could never happen. No direct claim case, of a third party is, it, is released. Can I just, can I, I'm sorry. Yes, so sir. with regard to the effect on the race, the, the claims, some of the claims that are being released, I mean, this is a very broad release. How is it that they actually 
I mean, it covers, they're broader, it's a broader release than prior cases have really addressed. And how is it that these claims, in fact, all have an impact, a direct impact on the race? Your Honor, respectfully, the releases are actually much narrower than releases in prior cases. Very often, the releases, as they were in Drexel and Metro Media, simply say any matter related to the debtors. And in fact, the court approved releases that had that language. These releases are actually nothing like that. Aren't the reason they're two pages but, but long, if I I'm, can explain. It, but, but I'll let you explain. But just, but in those prior cases, weren't those circumstances often where the claims were deemed to be derivative? No, not at all, Your Honor. In fact, let's take the example of Drexel. Drexel was securities fraud cases against officers and directors for which they paid in substantial sums to get releases for all claims, including fraud, in connection with the debtor's estate. Again, in our case, Your Honor, if you'll give me a minute because it's so important. Uh, Drexel, uh, Drexel is a class action where uh, Judge Pollack pulled the class action out of, pulled it in a district court. It's still within the context of bankruptcy, so you can't just say it's just a class action. I get that. But but what Drexel, what happened in Drexel was that there were there were folks who had uh, Bosky litigants who, who had claims against uh, with regard to breach of fiduciary duties or other perhaps securities fraud misrepresentations that may not have had claims necessarily against Drexel, but they were well, but their their claims eight hundred and fifty of them there were in that in that class B it was in in that class That's right. there was a fund that was created for them within the context of that class action so it's it's a Drexel's kind of a unique situation in that in that you had claims that may not necessarily have been against the estate and, and had some you know connection to activity by some of the uh, the junk bond purveyors, but but ultimately that they were paid. By the way, uh, uh, my good friend Judge Jacobs is wrong in Metro Media to say that those claimants in Drexel weren't paid. They indeed were paid from from fund the settlement fund B. So there's, I'm, with all due respect to Metro Media, that that's not correct in that regard, but that's to the side. Sir, let now, me, so, and you stand on Metro Media. It's kind, of a, it's kind of a flimsy ship, isn't it? Judge Jacobs didn't express full-throated endorsement, did he? He said, well, we've done this before he cites Drexel. Then he says, then he says well, um, uh, uh, Drexel and the case that it relies on, which is the Fourth Circuit, relies upon Section 105. But, geez, you'd think 105, it, all it says is just kind of general powers of the court. And then others rely on 524E, uh, except that there's 524G, which gives specific recognition to the uniqueness of the asbestos matter. So, Your Honor, let me weave together, if I may, answers to all of those questions and do the best I can, because they actually all relate. And this case, I think, threads all those issues in our view and in the view of the overwhelming number of victims quite appropriately under Second Circuit precedent. First of all, Drexel has three sections. The second one was the Class Action Rule 23. Roman 3 was entirely separate, which was authority under the Bankruptcy Code. And exactly as here, and your point is exactly one I was going to make, as you'll hear from the PI victims in particular, there is a fund. It's billions of dollars big, and there are TDPs, and that's exactly where the claims are channeled, which is the exact architecture of the plan. Your Honor, to get to your question before I return to Metro Media, the releases are not broad. The reason they're two pages long is because they're narrower. First, you have to be a creditor against Purdue in order to have your third-party claim released at all. 
That's never been done in a case before, and it's designed to ensure that as in Manville 1, 3, and 4, it has to actually be connected to the estate. And most importantly, among the other provisions, is number four. Judge Drain imported sua sponte, the language from Quigley, that says that the debtor's conduct has to be the legal cause or a legally relevant factor, or else the claims are not released if they're owned by third parties. Your Honor, as to your question, I, I, I'm inclined to agree. The Second Circuit cases, and there are six of them, rest only on 105, beginning, of course, with Manville. They're all, they all cite the Drexel Berman. Well, except for Manville. Well, and then the Metro Media, it's, it's a repetition of one sentence uh, uh, endorsements. It's a footnote. There's a footnote in, in Madoff well, which says, in, in, in Metro Media, we, we approve this. No one, no one, other than, other than uh, uh, in, in MacArthur, Went through any kind of detailed analysis as to why, and of course, that's in the context of that's in the context of asbestos litigation. And, and the answer is Judge Drain did, and let me explain. Madoff one, of course, predated. Uh, sorry, Madoff one. Manville one, of course, predated 524G. It was this circuit that created the concept of propriety of third-party releases when necessary to the reorganization and impacting the race. The Supreme Court in Energy Resources specifically found that 1123b6, which says, and I quote, a plan may contain any provision appropriate and not inconsistent with the provisions of this title. Two of your sister circuits, the Seventh Circuit in Aerodyne and the Sixth Circuit in Dow Corning, expressly ruling on third-party releases, coupled 1123b6 with 105 and said together there is no question. Here, Your Honor, we also have two other helper provisions relied upon by Judge Drain. 105 is not doing the lift by itself. 1123b3, which expressly contemplates the debtor settling its own causes of action, the debtor's causes of action against the Sacklers are its most valuable estate, uh, most valuable asset. We are the plaintiffs. The Sacklers are the defendants. We own billions of dollars of claims. Judge Drain found, as a matter of fact, and it is undisputed, those claims could not be settled unless, to use the district court words, the, quote, congruent claims that overlap and intertwine absolutely and completely and are inextricable against the Sacklers were settled. We also have 1123A5, Your Honor, which says that a plan can contain any provision, not any provision, plans can contain provisions, or shall contain, actually, provisions required for the well, But that's not limitless. You don't, I mean, you don't seriously say that the Congress just sends that do whatever you want to do, but you can do A through J, but you can do anything else that's necessary to, for the plan? Your Honor, I completely agree. This is a bankruptcy court. This is a creature statute. It doesn't. It has no more jurisdiction than which Congress gives it. Your Honor, that's correct. And so is, where's the phrase that says, and anything else the court thinks is necessary? So, Your Honor, if I may, let me separate out jurisdiction. And, in fact, in Celotex, the Supreme Court, which this court picked up on in multiple decisions, including, of course, Madoff 3 and uh, Manville 3 and 4, and obviously SPVosis and Quigley, which followed, expressly talk about the new code as being a fundamental change and far broader bankruptcy jurisdiction. But to be clear, Your Honor, with apologies, jurisdiction is actually not really on appeal. Judge McMahon affirmed Judge Strait on jurisdiction and found multiple profound Except that we have to consider jurisdiction ourselves, regardless of whether you raise it or not. We do, Your Honor. And the test in this circuit, most recently and quickly in SPD-OSIS, verbatim out of Celotex, is is there a 
if the other underlying actions might have a conceivable effect on the estate. Here, the effects on the estate are unchallenged, and they are absolutely massive. One, the destruction of the debtors themselves, who cannot survive if thousands of lawsuits about their own contact continues. Two, what was found sufficient in Manville 1 and many other cases, the insurance policies. We share them with the Sacklers. And if these lawsuits all continue... Yeah, but that's curious because, you know, uh, when, we had, when we had Manville, which went to the Supreme Court, um, we said that notwithstanding that, notwithstanding McCarthy, we said that those claims, those direct claims that came out of state, state statutory schemes against the insurance company, Travelers, were direct claims and based upon Travelers' own conduct, right? And, and, and what's curious about it is that when it went to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court didn't say, oh, the Second Circuit was wrong because, indeed, the, Supreme, the, the bankruptcy court had jurisdiction. It said, well, the notice was sufficient, and so, therefore, res judicata applies. We expressed no opinion as to whether the bankruptcy that's, court That's correct, Your Honor. It would be much neater if, I mean, it, if there was no jurisdiction, you would have thought that the, the Supreme Court would have told us that. Your Honor, your decision in Manville 3 was absolutely correct Thank and supports you. the conclusion here. Let me explain why. I knew Manville, sooner or later I'd hear that Man, today. Man, and I'm going to give you Tronox as its companion. Manville 3 said, unless there's an effect on the race of the estate and the debtor's conduct is at issue, there is no jurisdiction. Here we have 100 pages of factual findings, undisputed, and no one disputes it, about the unbelievably terrible effect on the estate nor is there any dispute that the debtor's conduct must be implicated because, Your Honor, as I answered your question, the very nature of the releases requires it. It's hardwired in. In Tronox, of course, what Your Honor did or what this court did was you talked about derivative in a different sense. In other words, the, the confusion a little bit or the complexity is that the Manville cases really talk about derivatives being derived from the conduct of the debtor. Correct. It's about the underlying cause of action. The more modern usage is direct versus derivative. Who owns the claims? Tronox and Madoff are exclusively about finding that boundary and saying if the... You've got a question from Judge Newman. Can you hear me? Yes, Your Honor. All right. Before your time runs out, you seem to be spending an awful lot of time sparring, if I can put it that way, with my colleagues as to the meaning of certain sentences and certain opinions of our court. I take it your position doesn't depend on those sentences. It depends on the code. Is that correct? Your Honor, it is. In particular, the Supreme Court's decision... You were invited by Judge Wesley to consider the question, are you saying anything that's useful is okay? And I think you started to answer that question, but I'm not sure you finished it. I take it your position is no. The code does not allow anything that's helpful. Your Honor, that's exactly correct. 1123b6 contains two limiters. Even when you leave aside... 1123g... B... I'm sorry, b6. It says it may include any other appropriate provision not inconsistent with the applicable provisions of the code. So if the plan runs into an inconsistency with the code, the plan is no good, right? Absolutely, Your Honor. Okay. 
So I just invite you to focus on the code before you're done, rather than get tangled up in who said what in one sentence of one opinion. Absolutely, Your Honor. Let, let me address it directly right now. Um, all of the alleged inconsistencies with the code are simply not there. And in fact, this court has ruled that they are not there in most of the instances. Alleged inconsistency number one is 524E, which merely states a truism. The debtor's discharge does not discharge another party for such debt. You discharge a debtor, not a debt. This court rejected the argument that 524E has any relevance to third-party releases in Manville 1, where it expressly said, quote, a release is not a discharge. It offers none of the umbrella protections of a discharge. And both in Drexel and Metro Media, the briefs directly argued to this court that the releases it issued violated 524E because they were discharges. And this court said, no, there is no conflict with the statute. The next provision does is 520. Excuse me. Does the plan discharge any creditor? It's hard to hear. I, I'm, hard to hear. I'm sorry. I'll try again. Does the plan discharge any creditor? No, Your Honor. What the plan does is it releases, it discharges only the debtors, and it releases a narrow category of tailored claims consistent with Second Circuit precedent of specific third parties, which in most cases have capacity limitations. Uh, it has to be connected to Purdue in their role with respect to Purdue or as a transferee. And as I said before, using the language from Quigley, literally verbatim, the debtor's conduct has to be the legal cause or a legally relevant factor. There's no other discharge of any kind. And you need to be a creditor of Purdue, which no of the, no of the, none of the third-party cases that have approved much broader releases before have ever had. You must be a creditor of the debtor or your direct claim is not released at all. These releases were tied to the debtor, to its conduct, and to the estate in ways that are much tighter than in any predecessor case, virtually all of which just release things related to the estate. With respect to 524G, Your Honor, to continue answering your question, the next alleged inconsistency, there is a reason no court in U.S. history has ever accepted that argument. 524G is a description of how asbestos releases work, and Section 111B of the public law enacted in 1994 expressly states, passed by Congress, signed by the President, that it is unlawful to draw an inference from 524G&H about third-party releases outside of the asbestos context. If, the, uh, if an individual has a claim against a prescriber of OxyContin, who, uh, who got one of these uh, uh, value savings cards that encouraged additional use of OxyContin from his prescriber. And he has a, he has a claim against the prescriber, uh, and he also has a claim against Purdue. He fits within the, the claimants easily with that. But he has a claim against the prescriber, too. Uh, does, is his claim against the prescriber, the high value, the prescriber extinguished? Absolutely not, Your Honor. Is the prescriber's claim for contribution from uh, Purdue extinguished? No, Your Honor. That, they're welcome to try to file a claim against our estate, and they will not prevail. This is all about maximizing value to creditors by bringing in money from the Sacklers 
after years of negotiation and litigation, and they are the only released parties. And even there, as I've described, there are multiple capacity limitations and limitations on the release. If you are not on the list of released persons, you are fair game to be a defendant, and God knows many of them should. Um, if I may finish answering Judge Newman's question, if that would be helpful. Um, the only other alleged provision of inconsistency, again, is one that has never been accepted by any court anywhere in this country, never, which is 523. 523 is a provision that says when an individual natural person goes through bankruptcy, this what is what is and is not discharged. Important provision, because millions of people use the bankruptcy code, and Congress wanted to make sure that when you go into a Chapter 11, you can't wash certain things through the proceeding. Third-party releases are entirely different. They come up when critical to a debtor's reorganization to help and maximize the recovery of innocent creditors. We are bringing in billions and billions of dollars to save lives. That's why just, there's... I'm sorry. Can I just jump in? One thing, this, this, I guess, one question I have is this, this question of abuse. And even in Metro Media, there was this acknowledgement that, you know, these releases perhaps can be okay, but there's a heightened risk of abuse. And in a situation like this where the, the parties being released are the ones uh, determining the contribution and kind of driving the, the plan, uh, that suggests concerns about abuse. Or, or even in future cases, the idea that the parties who, who are getting the benefit of this release are determining, you know, how much they give, how essential it's going to be to the plan? Absolutely, Your Honor. If I can tackle, there were two things in there. If you don't mind, I'd like to address them both because they're actually so important. Um, number one is the question of, is there abuse? Now, when Metro Media talks about abuse, and I think Judge Wiles, quite actually sharp opinion in Aegean Marine, is quite helpful on this. What the Second Circuit was talking about was the abuse of overuse of third-party releases. And I think the courts need to be continuously diligent that the many guardrails and requirements that this and other circuits have set forth are continuously monitored, effect on the estate, jurisdiction, race, substantial contribution, etc. That really is what the court meant by abuse, which is are they being overused? And we actually went back and looked at the 80 cases that we cited in our brief, all of them, because the government said that shows this is metastasized. What they didn't look at was how many of those cases have turned down third-party releases, which is more than half, about 55%, which means the courts are doing their job. In this case, I, I Your think, Honor... I think, Judge Newman, did you... Are you familiar with the mediation process that uh, the judge and, uh, account and the attorney Feinberg went through? I am, Your Honor. I, I worked more than 12 hours a day on it for about a year. In that mediation... Was the four billion? What is it? Four billion point something? Four point three two five, Your Honor. Was that the Sackler's opening suggestion? So, Your Honor, I'm actually glad you asked. Try to stay with the question. Was that their opening suggestion for their contribution? So, Your Honor, with apologies, mediation privilege actually governs certain aspects of the mediation, but I think it's fair to assume that it was not their opening bid at all. There was a $3 billion publicly announced settlement on the day we filed Chapter 11 that also included 90% of the upside of all their foreign companies, all of which had to be sold. It's fair to assume that it was mediation. 
and, and, and Chancellor Weinberg, who got the Sacklers up from their opening bid to four billion point two. Uh, Your Honor, there were, there, Your Honor, there were there were two mediators, um, Judge Lane Phillips and Ken Feinberg, yeah. who spent eleven months full time, all day, every day. I'm just and, asking: Is it fair to infer that it was the pushing of the mediators that got the Sacklers up from whatever their opening bid was to the eventual four point two billion? So, Your Honor, the mediators were one aspect of helping ensure that a proper and fair deal was reached in this case. No question about it. But as the record makes clear, this was the creditor's plan and the creditor's committee and 11 ad hoc groups of victims. This courtroom is full of them, litigated opposite the Sacklers. There were hundreds of millions of pages of discovery produced. I get all that, and I just don't know why... I mean, I'm giving you what I think is a softball question, uh, which you're standing there and, and letting go right over the plate. Uh, Judge Lee was concerned that the Sacklers, I think her word was, determined the contribution. And what I'm suggesting to you and asking you today, is it a fair inference that their opening bid was pushed up by the mediators? Your Honor, let me apologize for, for missing a pitch. Uh, what I was trying to convey, and I apologize, I obviously did it badly, is there were multiple rounds of mediation between both active judges and retired judges. Again, is it a fair inference that the mediators pushed the Sacklers up from their opening bid to 4.2? Now, either that's a fair inference or it's not. Your Honor, it, it, is, it is a fact that is set forth and described in the disclosure statement, which has an entire section of the history of negotiations. They then went up again after mediation before sitting Judge well, Chapman. So the, to the question, is it a fair inference, the answer is yes. Is that right? It is, Your Honor. Thank you. Um, and, and Judge Lee, just to finish answering your question, because the question of abuse and control is a desperately important one, and I want to give you comfort Judge Newman's point, which I clearly missed, for which I apologize, is that we had multiple rounds of mediation before sitting and former federal judges who oversaw more than a year of full-time mediation to ensure the fairness and integrity of the process. But the reason I was struggling for a minute is that's only one of the things that ensured the fairness and the integrity of the process because we had all, virtually all 50 state attorneys general an official committee of unsecured creditors, and eight ad hoc victims groups engaged all day, every day in this case, over 300,000 hours of professional time poised opposite the Sacklers, which is why this plan has universal support. The only appellees are the U.S. government, which has carved out of the releases, cut its deals, and got paid by the Sacklers already. When you say the U.S. government, uh, are you referring to the U.S. trustee? Your Honor, the U.S. trustee is not an economic party in interest. The Department of Justice... You just, said, you just referred to the U.S. government. Is it your view that the United States is against confirmation? Uh, Your Honor, the Department of Justice submitted a statement of interest before the district court that in essence took the same position as the U.S. trustee, which frankly many of us found, to say the least, shocking or confusing, given that 
their deal, pro-abatement and giving up almost all their recovery to state and local governments to save lives, is actually the cornerstone of the plan. They're throwing in $1.75 billion, aren't they? They are allowing $1.75 billion that, uh, that is coming from the Sacklers in these very settlements that otherwise would come to them as a plan distribution to go out to communities in desperate need of funds to save lives via our historic abatement structure. The states hadn't given up its 1.75 super priority claim. The plan would, would not be before us, would it? Well, Your Honor, we agreed to the $2 billion claim, which was done consensually in a settlement in conjunction with a provision that they would give most of it back for abatement. That actually was the business deal, and we actually had to litigate to get that deal through because parties opposed it. It was a holistic deal where they were given a very large agreed claim, but then also agreed to give almost all of it back to save American lives and ameliorate the opioid crisis. Because the debtors announced on the first day of the case, and this is also just desperately important to me, we will not do a plan where the money does not go to save American lives. And every corner group in this case... But without the give back, there wouldn't be a plan. Is that right? It's going to get... Well, I'm not sure, Your Honor, what deal we would have cut with the DOJ had the give back not been part of it. It was a holistic negotiation where the agreement to the allowed claims and the 1.75 give back were both aspects of a court-approved settlement agreement. Well, is it fair to say it's an integral part of the plan? Yes, Your Honor, it is. Let me ask you a question. An individual has a personal injury claim against the corporation for addiction, and they live in a state that allows a direct action which imposes personal liability on a director or officer. They make a claim with regard to the addiction to the trust, to the appropriate fund, one of the seven funds that you've created. All right. And what happens with regard to the direct action claim in those states where those claims are allowed? So, Your Honor, those direct action claims are exactly what is channeled under the plan. That is, in fact, at the core of what the third-party release is for. The Sacklers are paying in $5.5 to $6 billion, which is actually the money that is funding. The answer is the release, right? They're channeled, Your Honor, and as the TDPs make clear, both your claims against the Sacklers and your claims against Purdue are what constitute the basis for your recovery against the trust. It's just there's only one injury, so you measure the injury once. So the release runs to the Sacklers, releasing them individually with regard to direct claims that state law authorizes with regard to various activity of corporate officers and imposes a direct personal liability upon the director for which reimbursement can't be sought from the corporation for which the officer or director is a member. So, Your Honor, I think the law is maybe complicated as to whether reimbursement could be sought from the corporation and whether they could be sought from the corporation. That's why I said that it couldn't. I think that actually varies by state law. I understand that, but that's why I asked you only about the ones that could. And so, Your Honor, I guess I would answer it like this. Getting back to our discussion about 10 minutes ago. You don't know the answer to that? I do know the answer. Oh, okay, good. The answer is that is exactly what's channeled. If the claims were owned by the company, 
we wouldn't need third-party releases. They'd well, any channel claim is then re- the Sacklers are released from personal liability, right? Yes, right. That, that's the nature, that, that's the cornerstone of the settlement that all the victim groups supported, as well as all the state attorneys general, which is the Sacklers pay in to the estate, and the claims against both the Sacklers and the company are channeled to the TDPs, the trust distribution procedures. It's actually a lot like the insurance company in Manville interplead is sort of paying in the entire proceeds to the estate and then claims that could be either against the company or against the insurance policy go through the channeling structures. I mean, Your Honor, it's the actual... Well, there, there was one one policy. There was a huge fight about a number of policies and layers of coverage, et cetera, et cetera. And travelers and a number of the other carriers finally reached a global settlement and created this fund. And, And... uh, the situation there was, uh, in, in Judge Newman's case, in the guard there, uh, you had a distributor, but the distributor's claims were going to be made against that fund. But that was that was the asset that was going to be divvied up one way or the other. Right. But and this is a little different. This is this is a state statute that imposes direct personal liability upon the Sacklers, and yet the Sacklers' claims are discharged. So because, of, because of the fact that they paid into the debtor, and and so state state claims are being extinguished by a bankruptcy order, right? So, Your Honor, this is exactly like every third-party release case ever. In other words, parties have direct claims against third parties, and a settlement is reached because the bankruptcy estate is so deeply affected. And again, in most of those cases, it's only about a payment into the estate, or it's about an insurance policy. Here, we actually have everything. The debtors have billions of dollars of insurance that the Sacklers are now walking away from. And, and only the bankruptcy the court order trumps the state cause of action because of the supremacy of the bankruptcy court? I mean, Your Honor, I believe in any case when a third-party claim is released, that, place other, that claim otherwise could be prosecuted under either state or federal law. And so whether it's MacArthur's claim in Manville 1, whether it's the securities law claims in Drexel, whether it's the hypothetical third-party claims in Metro Media, whether it's the, the, the breast implant claims in Dow Corning, and this is another really important point. And they continue to grow these types of cases. Well, it, interestingly enough, Your Honor, if you, if you think back from a policy perspective, almost every mass tort that has ever hit the bankruptcy system in every circuit in this land was only resolvable through third-party no releases. No doubt. And it, there's no doubt. No doubt. The question is, how, how much can the bankruptcy court give to the Sacklers as it impacts individuals who have a separate independent claim against them for which somehow the Sacklers become absolved because they play a vital role in settling this case? So, Your Honor, what, what I would say is this. In, in the mate, I'm in sorry. The, Oh, gonna, May I answer? Oh, absolutely. I, I certainly want you to respond and start to wrap up. We've let you go quite a bit. Sure, I, I, I apologize. <laughs> I thought I was only answering questions. No. I, I don't mean to tarry. No, um, no. Your Honor, in Madoff, this court's exact words were, bankruptcy courts have authority, quote, to approve releases of a non-director's independent claims. That was what you repeated and cited to at page 99 of Tronox. And you're right, that is out of Metro Media. Now, Your Honor, if this court's view is, all of our cases to date rested only on 105. 
and a bunch of the other cases, including the Supreme Court, have cited 1123b6 also, because that's actually for a plan of reorganization, in fact, more closely, arguably even on point, because it says a plan may contain any provision appropriate and not inconsistent. And bankruptcy judges all over the code are given leeway, does not discriminate unfairly, is necessary, necessary for the organization. There are adjectives there in, in about 40 places in the code where this type of discretion is the warp and woof of what the broad jurisdiction under Celotex and SPVOSIS and quickly at your decisions, Tronox, Manville 3, Manville 4, are all about. And never before has a case like this happened where the entire case for two and a half years was only about the third-party claims, and that's what was mediated, litigated, and negotiated, and every group in the case needs this money okay. to go out to save lives. Great. Okay. Thank you. We'll hear from you again on that rebuttal. Um, so at the next party, we're hearing from the, the uh, Committee of Unsecured Creditors. Is that correct? It is. Uh, good morning. <clears throat> Uh, may speak right up. Please speak right up. It's hard to hear sometimes. I will. And you're Mr. Hurley? Yeah, okay. I am Mr. Hurley. May it please the court, my name is Mitch Hurley on behalf of the Unsecured Creditors Committee. The UCC was selected by the U.S. trustee himself to act as a statutory fiduciary for all of Purdue's unsecured creditors in these cases. And the UCC has faithfully discharged that role in the more than two and a half years since we were appointed. We can therefore say with confidence that the plan, far from being dictated by the Sacklers, is a creditor's plan. It reflects creditor compromises and advances creditor interests. The U.S. trustee is correct that the transfer-related claims are strong against the Sacklers. We know it was Purdue's creditors who uncovered and developed virtually all of the evidence that the U.S. trustee cites. But litigation against the Sacklers would take years and tens of millions of dollars at least and success, no matter how likely, is not guaranteed. In contrast, the settlement incorporated in the plan does guarantee that Purdue's claimants will receive billions in desperately needed relief in the near term and promote abatement and public health goals that could not be achieved outside of a consensual resolution. The settlement also is critical to the reorganization. Purdue's many creditors negotiated the 20-plus interlocking agreements that allocate value amongst creditors. Absent the Sackler settlement and release, as Judge Strain found, all of those credit allocation agreements will unravel by their terms and lead to costly intercreditor litigation that itself could take years and cost tens of millions of dollars. As Judge Strain also specifically found, the estates cannot withstand the chaos, that kind of chaos, and a liquidation with literally no recovery by unsecured creditors would be likely. This is all the more so because in that event, the DOJ could assert the full amount of its allegedly $2 billion super priority claim, which is more than some estimates of Purdue's entire enterprise value. Creditors in the trial court for these reasons recognized that the releases at issue are not only important to the plan, they are absolutely essential. Even the U.S. trustee acknowledges that the plan would fail without the release, and no party ever identified at the confirmation hearing or before the district court any alternative to the plan that could result in a successful reorganization. That's because there isn't one. Finally, it is estimated that an average of 200 people die every day as a result of the opioid crisis. Our plan ensures that billions in Purdue and Sackler assets 
will be used now to stem that tide and save and improve countless lives. No other outcome can achieve this result. It is that simple. We urge the court to reaffirm its holding in Metro Media, uphold the confirmation order, and let the creditor's plan proceed forthwith. Thank you, Thank you. Mr. Chairman. Okay. Um, so next we'll hear from the uh, ad hoc committee of uh, governmental and May it please the court, my name is Roy Englert. I represent the ad hoc committee of governmental and other contingent litigation claimants, which represents the interests of many states, municipalities, and tribes. After protracted negotiation and mediation, this plan received overwhelming creditor support. It will make billions of dollars available for opioid abatement. All of the voting states and territories have now consented to the plan and its third-party releases. 42 voted states voted to confirm it, and another nine have now withdrawn their objections. Allocation negotiations among the states began in 2018 and continued for more than two years, resulting in a consensual split of abatement funds. The states and local governments then reached agreement on abatement metrics and mechanisms, an achievement Judge Grain called incredible. As the bankruptcy court also found, as fact, the entire race of the bankruptcy estate will likely be lost if this plan does not proceed, costing victims billions of dollars. I would like to turn to the text of the statute. Section 1123b6 provides that a plan may include any other appropriate provision not inconsistent with the applicable provisions of this title. It seems to me there are three operative words, any, applicable, and not inconsistent. Any means any. Not, not inconsistent has been covered by Mr. Hubner, and I would particularly commend to this Court's attention Section 111B of the 1994 statute, which is codified. It's sometimes referred to as uncodified, but it's codified as a note to 11 U.S.C. Section 524. The word that does all the work is appropriate. And, yes, this is a very broad permission to bankruptcy courts. Now, why shouldn't that worry the Court? Let me say two things. One, there's an article by the great Judge Henry Friendly called Indiscretion About Discretion, which has been quoted by the Supreme Court of the United States. And Judge Friendly points out that Congress often gives courts very broad authority, but then it gets worked out by the common law method over time so that it is not abused. Why do you bother with 524G then? Uh, 524G was meant to ratify this court's Manville decision. It was unnecessary. Under your theory, it's completely unnecessary. Uh, what did it do? So it just enacted it so everybody knew that they, they agreed with that one? Well, there was tremendous controversy over Manville, as Your Honor is well aware. And Congress did want not only to ratify Manville, but to put some very, very, very detailed procedures in place. And that's Congress's prerogative is to legislate in detail, but it's also Congress's prerogative, Judge Wesley, to legislate broadly, which is what it did in 1123b6, but with the very important qualification that the provision must be appropriate. Now, if ever there was an appropriate case, this unique mass tort case is the case in which a third Appropriate party is defined by the circumstance or appropriate is by, defined by the underlying premises and limitations of the bankruptcy code itself. I mean, I, I'm not interested in the, the hype of, the, of whether the Sacklers dictated this or not. It doesn't interest me at all. What I'm interested in is whether the court has the authority to do this or not. And so... Um, is it is it the the substantial contribution that the third party non debtors make? 
That's part of it. But again, I'm standing here representing the states. Don't get drawn into that. For heaven's sakes. Why don't you let him answer my question? Well, he'll answer it after I finish. Please don't shoot yourself in the foot by saying it's the contribution of the sectors that make this plan lawful. Don't do that. But what I start 112423B6, which said they can do anything appropriate, not inconsistent with applicable provisions. So the burden is on the objectors to find an applicable provision that says the bankruptcy judge can't do this. And your position, as you started, is there is none. Yes. And the fact that Congress blessed the asbestos thing isn't a contrary provision because Congress said specifically draw no inference from our doing this. Yes. Draw no negative inference. Yes. So there is no provision on your view that says it can't be done. And that remains true whether the sectors put in $4 billion, $1 billion, or zero. Right? There's no provision in the code that says that can't be done no matter what the sector's contribution. But I do want to emphasize on behalf of the states the enormous amount of work that went into creating mechanisms for opioid abatement and why this matter is supported by, why this plan is supported by essentially the unanimous view of the states, which is very unusual. Judge Wesley, I thought some of your questions. So absent a limitation, anything goes, I take it. No. This is why I brought up the friendly article. Well, Judge Newman was asking you, you said absent a limitation, anything else is appropriate. Is that it? Anything else is not inconsistent. Again, I started by saying the operative words are not inconsistent. What are the limits then? The limits are worked out by courts over time in decisions like Metro Media and in the decisions from other circuits. Counsel, start with the statute. It doesn't, you started with the word any, but it is followed by any other appropriate provision. Right? Yes. Doesn't the word appropriate have some meaning? Yes. Is it limitless? I'm not going to ask anymore. I'm done. Thank you. Thank you, Judge Newman. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Next, I believe it's the counsel for the Raymond Sackler family. Mr. Joseph is next. Your Honor, we reserve the two minutes for rebuttal because the issue we address is not the issue that Your Honor has been considering. Okay. Thank you. We'll hear from you later. Okay. And the next party is the ad hoc group of individual victims. Is that? Yes. Okay. And you're Mr. Schor? I am. Okay. Again, Chris Schor from White and Case on behalf of the ad hoc group, which is a group of about 65,000 individuals that participated actively in the proceedings below, including in drafting the TDPs, which raised a question. And I'm happy to answer any question you might have about the TDPs, but let me answer the question you asked, Judge Wesley. The TDPs are premised on one injury, one claim. That was a set of processes that were put in TDPs that were approved by the bankruptcy court without objection from anybody. The alternate rule in which we would try to determine 160,000-plus personal injury claims 
by allocating relative fault between the Sacklers and Purdue, completely unworkable. So the TDPs, one injury, one payment out, but to be clear, they are all being funded with the Sackler contributions, which are being made for both release of estate claims and direct claims. With the rest of my time, though, and it's going to sound weird for the victim's lawyer to say this, I want you to look past the cravenness of what the Sacklers did here as officers and directors of this company and the damages that they brought on everybody. The key question that not only applies in this case but will apply in every future case is how do you solve the situation that Your Honor identified where there are claims against the corporation and there are claims against the directors and officers for their participation in those acts. Those are the claims we're talking about. Those are the claims that were identified um, by Judge McMahon. Those are the claims that are raised in everybody's papers. Acts by Mortimer Jr., acts by Richard Sackler, acts by Kathy Sackler, all taken while they were directors or officers of the company. According to the appellants, in this case and in every case in this circuit, the only way you can ever solve that problem is taking one of three approaches. One, you have to get the consent of everybody who has a direct claim. There are 300,000 creditors in Purdue. There is no way to get them all to vote on a plan, much less agree to everything. Two, you can have the directors and officers file for bankruptcy. The U.S. trustee points out that's what can happen. You have your whole board and officer slate file for bankruptcy in a case in which you're accused of participating in a securities fraud. Or well, three... That, that, that is particularly... Acute in a closely held corporation, obviously. Absolutely. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. And three, you litigate it to result. It leads to what I call an unmost bankruptcy-like result, in which the company continues to pay on DNO policies while that litigation goes on. The directors and officers get no comfort. There's no money funded to pay victims, and everybody loses. Is he in? Is the injury the same being addiction as opposed to some other type of injury? That, Every is, that, is that the nature of the reason for the one, one claim? Yes. We, multiple theories yes. against multiple parties, some of, the, some of them non-debtors, many of them non-debtors, um, but it's one injury? One injury. In fact, in both the bankruptcy court and the district court, there were pleas to everybody involved. Please come forward and tell me about the claims you are concerned about that are being released. And what came forward were obvious estate claims. The Sacklers looted Purdue, walked away with all the money. Those are claims that the estate could settle without third-party releases. And what everything else that bubbled up and what Judge McMahon addressed specifically and what Your Honor raised today are claims against the D's and O's for actions they took in directing the company to distribute pro uh, products into the stream of converse, uh, commerce and injure people. Those are the claims we're talking about. They are inextricably intertwined, as Mr. Huebner said, with the claims against the company. So third-party releases are what today has solved that problem. It allows the D's and O's to waive their claims and contribution claims against the company and kick in money. 
It channels the uh, claims to insurance or a, a, or a fund, and it releases the debtors from the ongoing indemnification claims. If your honors are going to find that that, that is taken away, the, that, that possibility no longer exists, there are no third-party releases, we would implore the court, as we have in our papers, to get to the question then of direct and derivative, to exercise your jurisdiction to look at this situation and say, in a world in which releases don't exist for the, for the Sacklers, for this conduct, should it be a case in which 300,000 claimants each have their individual claims that they can pursue based on state laws, we'll have cases going in 50 states, all for the same conduct and all trying to get to the same result? but for which the individuals will hold the payments for themselves, just as the nine states who did who settled. They said, I have a direct claim. I'm going to take $300 million approximately for myself. I'm going to put it in my pocket and not share for anybody. That's not the result that bankruptcy should promote. The question that should be addressed, and I think based upon what we put forward in our papers, is the court can rule in a world in which third-party releases don't exist. Claims like this... There may be direct claims, but the debtor should have standing to pursue them. It leads to what Your Honor said in Tronox, which is it leads to an equitable result. Everybody wins. People will have their opportunity to participate. People can question whether the, the debtor's settlement is appropriate. But you can't leave a world in which nobody gets anything until the 300,000th person gives up their litigation. Because that's the factual situation we're in. The Sacklers aren't funding until they get comfort on those claims. It's done pursuant to a third-party release. If the third-party release isn't available, it should be done pursuant to this court's existing direct derivative jurisprudence that's been laid out and summarized most recently in Tronics. So unless you have any further questions, that's what we have. Thank you. We thank you for your time. Thank you. Good morning. May it please the court. I'm Jeffrey Liesemer of Kaplan and Drysdale for the Multi-State Governmental Entities Group, which represents the interests of over a thousand local governments and tens of millions of their constituents. Local governmental entities are at the forefront of both opioid litigation and abatement efforts and will be critically affected by resolution of the issues before this court today. First, 95% of the creditors casting ballots voted in favor of the plan containing the shareholder releases. Whereas Section 524G, by comparison, only requires 75%. This overwhelming support shows that creditors believe that the plan containing the releases best serves their interests. Second, it's hard to imagine third-party releases more important and essential to a reorganization than these. Two of the most important achievements of the MSGE group and other public creditors are, one, an agreed allocation of recoveries among incredibly disparate and complex creditor groups, and two, agreement to use the billions recovered from Purdue and Sacklers exclusively to abate the opioid crisis, bringing billions of life-saving dollars to help those most vulnerable and in need. Those achievements likely would be destroyed if creditors could continue to sue the Sacklers for Purdue-related claims. 
This is because the available assets are dwarfed by the claims asserted against them. The public creditor's claims alone are in the trillions of dollars. Even if one significant creditor were not bound to the releases and got a judgment anywhere near its asserted claim, the Sacklers would not be able to make their agreed settlement contributions, drastically reducing or eliminating payments to all other public and private creditors. Thus, the releases are essential to protect the victims and creditors. Indeed, the trial court found at SPA 296 that the debtors would likely liquidate absent these releases, leaving victims with little or nothing. We ask that the confirmation order be affirmed. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, is the next party for uh, the Mortimer side initial coverage Sackler family? Is that? Uh, Your Honor, I reserved my time for rebuttal as well. Okay, thank, thank you. you. We'll hear from you. Okay. Um. <laughs> I'll let you introduce yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Carl Ciceri for the Canadian Creditors. Um, I'm going to be focusing my time on the issues that are unique to the uh, Canadian creditors, but obviously they cross-cut on a lot of different things, including the court's power to... Uh, right up. Yeah, the court's power to um, to impose the releases. Um, now, the appellants in this case have largely attempted to minimize the significance of the Canadian creditors, but the court shouldn't be taken in by that effort. The Canadian creditors represent much more than a few isolated communities. They're the named representatives of classes that are likely to be certified in the near future. That will represent all 3,000 municipalities in Canada, all 600 First Nations in Canada. Can you um, I actually have one question? Your, your argument about regarding sovereign immunity, how do the releases implicate that? There's, this is not a foreign sovereign being brought into court or held liable. I just, that, I'm confused by that argument. Well, it is, a, uh, it is an instance in which our property is being adjudicated, our rights in our property, that is, our rights and causes of action that we have against the Sacklers and other shareholder release parties are but being adjudicated being finally forced, you're not exchanged. I'm sorry. You're not being forced to dragged into a U.S. court. You're not being held liable for something. What's um, No, but we're being – I mean, it's the same as if we were a defendant in a declaratory judgment. We are having our rights adjudicated as a defendant. Um, whether or not we are being held liable – for damages doesn't matter in terms of sovereign immunity. It's a question of whether the court is exerting jurisdiction over us. But you're coming into this voluntarily. The court is not forcing you into this proceeding. You voluntarily have been a part of this. Well, we filed a proof of claim in this case, and that is, and that's true of the individual um, representative uh, claimants that are here before you today, um, not the class. But uh, but when you file a proof in bankruptcy, that does not waive claims of sovereign immunity. When it, when it comes to uh, immunity provided under FISA, the only way to waive immunity under FISA is under FISA. 1604 says that, you know, you go through 1604 and 1605 through 1607 are the only ways, the exclusive ways that FISA immunity can be waived. When it comes to the common law uh, immunity enjoyed by tribes, when they appear and provide and, – and, they enter an appearance in bankruptcy. Um, 
by, by filing a proof of claim, all they have done is consented to personal jurisdiction to, um, to adjudicate their claim. And any claims are counterclaims that might offset that claim. Um, there is no uh, consent or there is no waiver of sovereign immunity as to uh, subject matter jurisdiction. Um, and, and sovereign immunity is a matter of subject matter jurisdiction. And there is no waiver of other claims. Um, you can't bring us into court in bankruptcy and then then have other people adjudicate their rights against us. And that's exactly what Maybe I'm disputing here. the idea that you were brought into this court in bankruptcy. You weren't brought in. You <laughs> inserted yourself into this. <laughs> well, we were brought into this bank. We, we came to this bankruptcy to adjudicate our rights against the debtor. We never raised any issues against any of these shareholder release parties. We've never sued, we never sued them. We never voluntarily consented to uh, be sued or countersued by them. And um, one, of the, uh, deci- one of the decisions that the appellants rely upon, S.G. Phillips says, you're only waiving, when you appear in bankruptcy, issues related to set-offs. You're not waiving any other issues regarding, to se- regarding uh, subject matter jurisdiction um, or sovereign immunity or anything else. And so you're not, your rights against third parties are not an issue and you haven't introduced or allowed yourself to be sued um, by them, if that makes any sense. Um, I want to return back to the issue of jurisdiction, the, the court's power to enter the releases, because I think, uh, Judge Wesley, your instinct is exactly correct. It's extremely problematic for these releases to be so broad because there's no contouring about jurisdiction. There certainly was probably jurisdiction to release some of these claims, but when you release all claims of all states without regard to whether or not there would be rights of contribution or indemnity by statute or anything else like that, you create a really big problem. And that's an especially bad problem for us because there's literally no connection to the estate at all from our claims. There will be no rights to contribution, indemnity, um, or insurance because they haven't established that there's any insurance policy that covers us. They haven't established that you know, the rights of contribution and indemnity with regards to our claims against Purdue Canada, they're going to run to Purdue Canada. They're the joint tortfeasor in that situation. And our Contribution Act claims, well, contribution, I mean, our, our Competition Act claims, for those, um, contribution and indemnity and insurance are all affirmatively barred by Canadian law. There will be no recovery for those claims. There's no connection to the estate there. Um, and as the court, as you suggested, Judge Wesley, it's also extremely problematic for them to say that, well, because uh, they've got a right to withdraw, the Sacklers have the right to withdraw the money if they're sued or, you know, the, there would be a cascade of events that would happen if there were, there were to be a bunch of suits. Um, that is an extremely problematic way of establishing jurisdiction because that establishes that there were effects on a particular plan. But then you have to leap from the plan to the estate, and, you're not a, and that is an indirect effect. That is a, that is a second order. If this happens, then another event happens, and that other people think, do other things. And that's exactly the kind of attenuated, indirect connection that can establish jurisdiction under this court's precedent. Do Canadian plaintiffs possess uh, uh, direct claims against the Sacklers individually? So we have not filed any claims against the Sacklers directly yet. We were prohibited from doing so by the impositions right. of stays here. And no, but I'm talking about. under Canada, Canadian law. Under Canadian law, we can sue, we, we can and plan to do, yes, exactly that. We plan to sue them 
um, both in their capacities of directors as uh, of Purdue Canada. We also plan to sue them under the Competition Act, which is a direct action against them individually, not in their capacities as officers and directors, but individually for their conduct in uh, in 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 promoting opioid drugs in the United States. You say States, those United States. And under Canadian law, you say the, with regard to those claims, they can't seek contribution or indemnification. With regard to the contribution, excuse me, with, our, with regard to the Competition Act claims, that's not just un, unlikely to happen. It's affirmatively barred under Canadian law. Um, on all three, no, there will be no contribution, there will be no indemnity, and there can be no insurance coverage. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Um, and um, oh, I, I think we, I think we, you, we, have. we have your argument. Okay. Thank, Thank you. you. And uh, we'll hear now from the, uh, the, the the trustee. Thank you very much, Your Honor. Mike Shee for the U.S. Trustee. I want to zoom out to focus on the appropriate framework for assessing the statutory question. And that stems from the long line of Supreme Court cases making clear that Congress needs to enact exceedingly clear language if it wants to significantly alter the power of the federal government over private property. Um, as it articulated most recently in Cowpasture. So under the plan proponent's view, the code authorizes bankruptcy courts to permanently extinguish causes of action, which are a species of property right, as the court made clear in Zimmerman Brush. But no provision of the bankruptcy code expressly authorizes bankruptcy courts to adopt releases of this sort, as the court indeed remarked in Metromedia. So constitutional avoidance requires that the code be construed to prohibit the result that the plan proponents are asking for. And that's a very easy way of assessing the statutory claims here. Now, the only response to this that I think the other side has come up with is not that avoidance doesn't apply, or it's not that constitutional issues aren't at least deeply implicated. It's that the bankruptcy code speaks clearly. And I think Judge Newman was getting at this in his colloquy about 1123b6. But the problem is the other side's interpretation of that statute just can't be reconciled with the way the Supreme Court has addressed these general provisions codifying bankruptcy court's residual equitable authority, as the energy resources case on which the other side so heavily relies actually underscores. Energy Resources makes clear that all of these statutes, whether it's 105, 1123, or whatever, all of these residual equitable uh, powers uh, derive from the traditional understanding that bankruptcy courts, as courts of equity, have broad authority to, quote, modify creditor-debtor relationships. And in assessing statutes of this type, the Supreme Court has repeatedly rejected the idea that the code's general authority provisions are able to accomplish a result that is antithetical not only to the text of the code, but to its structure, purposes, and history. Well, I think, I mean, I think the other side's argument is that, in fact, this type of release would not be inconsistent with the code and that it's not, uh, in fact, in, uh, uh, inconsistent with any express provision of the code. So maybe you could, ex you could speak to that specifically. I, I will, Your Honor. There's two parts to your question, and I want to get at them in reverse. So the first question is, how expressed does the inconsistency have to be? And the other side would have you believe that 
it needs to be expressly forbidden by the bankruptcy code for there to be an inconsistency. And that just can't be right under cases like Jevic, Law, and Radlax. So take Jevic, for example. That was about the priority ordering that the bankruptcy code sets forth. Now, those priority orders don't apply to this type of order called a structured dismissal. So nothing in the bankruptcy code expressly prohibits a bankruptcy court from adopting a structured dismissal that violates the priority provisions. Nevertheless, the Supreme Court said in Jevic that the priority provisions are so fundamental to bankruptcy that the general provisions granting equitable power to the bankruptcy court can't support the exercise of authority. And so analogizing... Can I just jump in for a second? Yeah. Because to me, the Jevic case is... is distinct from what's going on here. In that situation, you actually have something in the bankruptcy code that specifically says this is the priority order, and it applies to, to certain circumstances. And yes, in that case, they're applying, they're, they're basically, the bankruptcy court is saying, well, we know these are the standard priority orders, but because the, the code doesn't say we have to apply it to a structured dismissal, we won't. That's, that's a clear inconsistency where the code is addressing a particular area in a very specific way about priori- priority and the court is actually, the bankruptcy court is saying, well, we know this is a priority, but we're going to divert from this because we think there's good reason, something general like that. Here, there's not some specific provision about third-party releases in the code where you can look at that, oh, this is some specific standard, and we're going to go away from that. That's, it seems like a different situation in Jevic because it's highly specific. And so, yes, what they were doing wasn't forbidden by the code, but it was addressed in a very explicit way. So point taken, Your Honor, we disagree with that reading of Jevic because, you know, as the other side would have it, there does need to be some express prohibition. But Your Honor's, I think, point is, I guess, slightly different, which is, you know, the the sort of inconsistency was more specific because there we're only talking about, you know, the specific priorities framework. And here the inconsistency is much broader. But that makes the problem worse, Your Honor, not better. So virtually every provision of the bankruptcy code is there to restructure the creditor-debtor relationship. That's all the bankruptcy code really talks about. Um, And this court has held, and the Supreme Court has held, and other circuits have held, that the, the whole point of bankruptcy is tailored to that relationship. And so it makes sense that the code is replete with statutory provisions directed to that relationship. It's not just the priority scheme that we're talking about now. We're now talking about, you know, as the other side said, the the warp and weft of the entire bankruptcy code. Um, And none of those provisions, except one, has anything to say about the release of a non-debtor's direct claim against another non-debtor. The one provision is uh, arising only in the asbestos context, and it doesn't apply to direct claims. It only applies to derivative claims, as this court explained in Manville 4. So the inconsistency is, yes, you're right, Your Honor, it's a more general inconsistency, but that just underscores why the power asserted by the bankruptcy court was was so remarkable and why that... I guess another way to look at it is, if it's so general, how are you determining that there is, in fact, an inconsistency? So Um, it's, it's not... So it's a structural analysis, Your Honor, in the same way that the Supreme Court has relied on the similar structural intuition in Javik, Radlax, and uh, Law. So, you know, again, the Supreme Court says where we have a whole bunch of provisions that address a particular type of thing, 
And no provision addresses the sort of thing that the bankruptcy court wants to do, but there's obviously a relationship between them, then, you know, that is antithetical to the structure of the bankruptcy code. And so that intuition applies with full force here. But it's not just the specific problem. Your reading of 1123b6, when it says not inconsistent with any applicable provision, you think that means inconsistent with another provision that deals with a specific topic and inconsistent with any provision that doesn't deal with a specific topic. Is that right? No, Your Honor. We agree that appropriate has meaning. What we're saying is that the specific topic relevant to the question of a non-debtor release is indeed the topic of whether a discharge in bankruptcy can provide relief not only to the debtor, but also to the non-debtor, and not only for derivative claims, but also for direct claims. And so we disagree with the premise of the question that there is somehow some divergence between, you know, that fundament of the bankruptcy code and, you know, and somehow that's irrelevant to the power that the bankruptcy court has asserted. But it's not just these general provisions, Your Honor, that the release offends. The release also grants the equivalent of a discharge to the settlers without ensuring that the settlers submit to the code's procedures for protecting creditors. So there's no reasonable dispute, for example, that if the settlers had declared bankruptcy themselves, they haven't, but if they had, the result would have been much different and the deal would have looked quite different. So the settlers would have needed, for example... Excuse me. Didn't we say in Manville 1 that a release was not a discharge? That was certainly part of Manville 1, but Manville 1 doesn't sweep that far for two reasons. The first is Manville 1 only addressed derivative claims, as the later cases in the Manville line make clear. And the second is that in Metro Media, this court explained that indeed a third-party release could be the equivalent of a discharge. But, you know, just to go back to the inconsistency, if the settlers had declared bankruptcy themselves, they would have needed to account for all of their assets, they would have needed to put them in the bankruptcy estate subject to certain exemptions, they wouldn't have been able to obtain relief for claims for fraud and certain other forms of intentional misconduct. The other side doesn't doubt anything you just said. No, they don't. They don't contest it. If they go into bankruptcy, the bankruptcy laws apply to them as a discharge creditor. They don't dispute that. Their argument is this is not a discharge. And you say, in effect, it's a discharge, right? Yes, Your Honor. But that makes the problem worse. It's not a discharge, is it? It is the same relief that a discharge grants. Discharge is not a magical term in bankruptcy. All a discharge means is that there is a permanent injunction on bringing a particular claim. That's exactly what this release does. This release operates as a permanent injunction on bringing a particular type of claim. It extinguishes the claim. It permanently extinguishes the claim. It's a permanent defense against. Exactly. And that's exactly what a discharge in bankruptcy does. And so they say it's, well, not technically a discharge in bankruptcy. That's true, Your Honors. But that just underscores why this is so weird to try to say is consistent with the bankruptcy code. 
if the relief they're given by the bankruptcy court is identical to a discharge, but the bankruptcy discharge provisions emphatically do not cover the sort of relief that they got, that is a tremendous assertion of power on behalf of the bankruptcy court that you would think Congress would have specified more clearly if it had intended the bankruptcy court to wield such authority. And, of course, notwithstanding the asbestos exception, which applies only to derivative claims, we are not aware of, and the other side hasn't cited, a single example of Congress saying that in something like the 222 years in which Congress has been legislating in the bankruptcy space. But, you know, to return to that point about the relief that the Sacklers could have gotten in individual bankruptcy just illustrates why this case is on all fours with JAMIC and Red Lights and Law. By not declaring bankruptcy, the Sacklers didn't have to give up all of their assets, got broader relief, released for claims for fraud, than they would have gotten under bankruptcy, all under the umbra of bankruptcy. And that's the sort of assertion of authority by the bankruptcy court that evades specific restrictions on what a discharge could do that the Supreme Court found so problematic in JAMIC. Where in the language of the release do you find the release for fraud? Sorry? Where in the language of the release do you find the release for fraud, fraudulent claims? So it's found in the definition of cause of action, Your Honor. And if you bear with me. I just want to make a note. Yeah, if you'll bear with me, let me find it in our brief. Yeah, so we begin discussing this on page 19 of our brief. And it continues on when we discuss the changes to the release on pages 21 through 23. And so the operative definition of cause of action is any claim within the meaning of the bankruptcy code, as well as any claim of any kind, character, or nature whatsoever. And that, to me, seems broad enough to encompass a claim for fraud against the Sacklers. So the other inconsistency to point out is with respect to 524G itself. When Congress enacted 524G, it specified that that was being enacted notwithstanding Section 524E, which, of course, states that a discharge of bankruptcy is for the benefit of the debtor. The other side has no explanation for why Congress would have wanted to include the notwithstanding language. As far as they're concerned, Congress didn't need to enact that language at all. And, indeed, Congress wouldn't have needed to enact 524G at all because, in their view, bankruptcy courts have traditionally wielded such power. But what do we, I mean, with regard to 524G, when it explicitly states don't read into, don't assume or read anything into, from this, rather, about the bankruptcy court's authority, it seems like it's a wash. Like, how can you say, well, even though the statute has an explicit provision telling, saying you can't rely on this or read into this, we should still read into it? So it's not, because that overreads the rule of construction, Your Honor. All the rule of construction says is if courts believe that bankruptcy courts have always had this authority, then the enactment of 524G shouldn't restrict that. That, I think, is the best reading of the rule of construction. But Congress didn't take a view as to, in the rule of construction, as to whether bankruptcy courts have traditionally wielded that authority. And although the other side relies on cases such as Katz that talk about 
the bankruptcy court's traditional authority at the time of the framing. They have notably failed to identify any framing-era example of a bankruptcy court reaching out to terminate a non-debtor's direct claim against another non-debtor. And we're not aware of any example of such historical power being exercised under equity, which is another reason why if a bankruptcy court is to exercise that power, one would expect Congress to have spoken quite clearly. And, uh, of course, uh, as Metro Media itself recognized, uh, there is no express provision of the bankruptcy code authorizing the release in question. Is it fair to say that with respect to non-asbestos claims, Congress didn't speak one way or the other with respect to release? That's fair, Your Honor. It's difficult to parse because, again, Congress in 524G said that 524E is a bar. And so, you know, we should credit what Congress said insofar as Congress relied on the notwithstanding language. If Congress hadn't thought of 524E as a bar, it's hard to understand why Congress would have put in the notwithstanding term. But, you know, even if Your Honor is right that the bankruptcy code has nothing to say, the district court correctly held that the tie goes against the bankruptcy court's exercise of authority here. And that's true for two reasons. The first is, of course, the rule of construction that the Supreme Court articulated in cases like Calpasture that requires an exceptionally clear statement of congressional intent. And second, the fact that in Jevick, the Supreme Court said to the extent that the bankruptcy court wants to assert a power that is inconsistent with the structure, purposes, or text of the bankruptcy code, there needs to be much more than congressional silence. So the fact that— I mean, isn't that—that's the whole issue, though, whether or not, in fact, this is inconsistent with the bankruptcy code. We know that there's no explicit provisions addressing that. That's the whole sort of issue here. So, Your Honor, if you don't think that there's any inconsistency with the bankruptcy code, then, of course, this difficulty is—that's going to be hard for us to overcome. Right. But, I mean, I guess what I'm saying is point me to the thing that shows there's an inconsistency. If you haven't agreed that the inconsistencies that we've identified here are not inconsistencies, right, then Your Honor has a very specific understanding of inconsistency that just can't be squared with how that is used in normal parlance. Because inconsistency doesn't mean inconsistent with just the expressed terms of a statute. Imagine a plain language example. A library says members can only borrow books for two weeks, and that's all. And then so a nonmember marches in and says, well, I'm not a member, so I can borrow books for as long as I want. I think everybody would go, well, that's a little bit weird, notwithstanding the fact that the rule for the library doesn't have anything to do with what nonmembers can or can't do. And so that's analogous to the sort of inconsistency that's present here, where a non-debtor says, I can get the benefit of a discharge, and the bankruptcy gets to grant me the equivalent of a discharge, a permanent injunction, as Judge Wesley has pointed out. But I don't need to comply with any of the rules of the bankruptcy code, and I don't need to contribute all of my assets. And, by the way, the permanent injunction that I'm getting is broader than the permanent injunction I would have been entitled to had I declared bankruptcy myself. That's the fundamental inconsistency here, and the fact that it's not just with limited provisions, such as the priority scheme, makes the problem worse and not better, Your Honor. And so, you know, to the extent that— Is it your position that there cannot be a lawful 
relief of the sort in this case unless Congress explicitly authorizes such a relief? Yes. That's your position? Our position is that if Congress has not expressly authorized the release of a direct claim of a non-debtor against another non-debtor, then a bankruptcy court lacks authority to adopt a plan that contains a release of that sort. An express congressional enactment such as 524G, except applicable to direct claims and not just derivative claims, that's the sort of thing that would be required before a bankruptcy court or any court could exercise authority in bankruptcy to do something like that. And the due process concerns... Go ahead. No, Your Honor, I did not mean to interrupt. He's letting you go. Oh, I thought Judge Lee had a question. No? Am I wrong? No, no, no. It's very hard to hear you, Judge Newman. Okay, I'll try to do better. I'm not sure counsel wants me to, but I'll be glad to try. I'll try to get the volume up. What, in your view, will happen to the existing and potential plaintiffs if the plan is not confirmed? So I'm glad for the opportunity to address that, Your Honor, and I want to make something very, very clear. The U.S. trustee fully recognizes the pain and suffering that the opioid crisis has caused, and the U.S. trustee agrees with the district court that the proposed plan with these contours could provide a lot of things that are very good to a lot of people. But those don't bear on the core legal question, which is whether the release is constitutionally sound or statutorily authorized. And moreover, these predictions about what will happen if the district court is affirmed are speculative. So, for example, the bankruptcy court approved the plan based in significant part on representations that it was the best plan and based on, it seems, significant efforts by the mediators to extract the best plan, and that led to a $4.3 billion contribution by the Sacklers. But once the district court vacated the plan, the Sacklers agreed to contribute an additional, like, one-point-something billion more, which was not on the table until the plan was vacated. So these suggestions that everything is going to fall apart are a little hard to credit. But even if the Sacklers decide to take their proverbial ball and go home, that doesn't mean that no plan can be confirmed. So, for example, the estate has billions of dollars in fraudulent conveyance claims against the Sacklers that presumably the estate could pursue if it chose. The states and plaintiffs could recover from the various lawsuits against the Sacklers that the bankruptcy court put on ice, and more people could file lawsuits, such as presumably the Canadian municipalities, whose ability to file lawsuits has been predetermined by the injunction that the bankruptcy court put in place. And to the extent that... Where would they sue the Sacklers? I don't know, Your Honor. You'll have to ask the Canadians about that. But the point is, to the extent that the Sacklers protest... The claim is their money is in the bailiwick of Jersey. That's right, Your Honor. But these representations about the value of the claims are also a little bit hard to credit. So at the confirmation hearing, the debtors specifically said that the merits of the district courts, of the direct claims against the Sacklers and the other released parties were irrelevant. I think one illustrative statement is on page 806 of the SPA, where they said, we chose the train that we're riding, and the train we're riding is not the merits. At the bankruptcy hearing, they never analyzed the value of the claims. They never retained any experts to value the claims. 
They didn't invite or receive any presentations from potential plaintiffs with such claims. So it's hard now to say, well, you know, the claims are essentially worthless. And they also emphasize how successful the Sacklers have been, as Your Honor has said, at, at shielding their assets from recovery. But that's also difficult to square with the Sacklers' own behavior, where they agreed to pay a billion dollars more to get these releases after the release was vacated to try to make this lawsuit go away. So it's difficult to understand how, in light of the absence of anything in the record about the value of these direct claims against the Sacklers, and in light of the Sacklers' willingness to pay an extra billion dollars just to get the release to try to make the lawsuit go away, that the fact that some of their assets may make the Sacklers hard to collect against makes the claims that the non-bettors have against the Sacklers worthless. But your view is that that doesn't... I'm, I'm sorry, I just was going to say, but your view is that that doesn't really, uh, even if the Sacklers were putting in $10 billion, your view is still that these releases are bad and the, the deal can't go through. Uh, that's right, Your Honor. But uh, I understood Judge Newman's question to be focusing on the equitable components of this. Um, and the, the sole point... What claims, what claims against the Sacklers could be released and only the claims held by the estate? So the claims that are not, the releases that are not at issue here, Your Honor, are the derivative releases. So releases of the sort uh, that were approved in Manville 1, such as against the proceeds of an insurance policy that was basically property of the estate. Uh, the trustee has not contested the propriety of that sort of release, and uh, you know, we don't understand any of the objectors to be focused on that either. So that would certainly still survive uh, a, an, an affirmance of the district court's holding. Um, but the, the sort of thing that can't be released is exactly the sort of claims... Indemnification claims they might hold against the, uh, against the debtors should they themselves as corporate directors be cast into liability where they have the right to indemnification? Who is, uh, who is bringing... The Sacklers. Could, could, the release, could they be released from that? I'm not sure, Your Honor. I think the way we would think about it is whether, you know that is a claim belonging to the estate. One of the problems with this yeah. is that it, it seems like a hypothetical. There's no definition to this. That's why I was, when the, when the, uh, the victim's uh, counsel stood up, it was, it was helpful in some ways to put, to put you know, some definition to it. Um, and and his, his view was there's one injury. I understand that. That's exactly what happened. That's exactly, that's MacArthur. That's exactly MacArthur, because there was there was a there was an exposure to asbestos by a product that MacArthur sold that Manville made, so it was all contained within that, and that's why that's why that recognizing the importance of the insurance policy or the insurance coverage, and, and uh, Judge Newman analogized to uh, claims against a common res uh, for which could people could make, and uh, that makes perfect sense to me. But it's hard to see the inappropriate, it's hard to conceptualize how this plays out as inappropriate beyond the, beyond the bankruptcy court's authority without, without putting the actors together because they're so fact-specific in sometimes. And that's why I've continued to ask questions about the state direct claims. Yes, Ron. I asked your Canadian uh, colleague there, or representing the Canadian claimants to to expound to that. So, I mean, these are in these are these are claims that you premise exist, 
but have no no one's definitely asserted because of the injunction, right? Uh, no, Your Honor. So there's two sort of sets of claims that could be fit into an answer to you. The first are all of the claims that already existed brought by a lot of the states, for example, that were put on ICE but had survived motions to Unfair dismiss. business practices, fraud, Like state false claims act cases or something along those lines. So those all survived motions to dismiss, as I understand it, on the basis that they were actually derivative claims and not direct claims. And uh, our brief uh, sets out a couple of instances uh, of, of cases surviving motions to dismiss on that basis under state law. So that's one category of claims that would be erased permanently by the release that would be able to go forward under uh, the district court's order if that's affirmed. Another category, of course, is uh, claims that haven't been brought in virtue of the injunction that has been in place. Um, and uh, to the extent that they likewise assert direct liability on behalf of the Sacklers, uh, then, then those two uh, would be permanently extinguished, but you know, individuals would be able to proceed on them to the extent that the district court is affirmed. But you know, to, to your point that there's essentially one injury, uh, th that's potentially true as a factual matter in some of these cases, but the fact is we just don't know because, as Your Honor has pointed out, uh, that is a necessarily fact-specific inquiry. And the point of the release is that it pretermits any such inquiry. Uh, nobody gets to go to court to try to test whether their claims are sufficiently overlapping. And, Your Honor, even if the claims were sufficiently overlapping, that wouldn't solve the constitutional problem because, you know, as Your Honor is quite aware, it's just a fundamental principle of tort law that even though uh, you may suffer one wrong at the hands of multiple actors, you have an individual claim an individual cause of action against all of the actors who have injured you. And uh, it's that cause of action, that property right under Zimmerman Brush, which is being permanently terminated by the Sackler release. And that's something that there must be a clear statement from Congress uh, before uh, a bankruptcy court can assert that authority. And, and I want to close by underscoring the importance of that constitutional question. Uh, which didn't get a lot of airtime in the presentation of the other side. Could I just, I'm yeah. sorry to, to oh, jump course, in. Yeah. It, it's related to this, the, the constitutional question. I, I guess I'm wondering how the, the constitutional problem you see here in terms of dis extinguishment of property rights and claims, how does that not also apply to 524G? Is so, that unconstitutional? Uh, no, Your Honor, and, and that's true for two reasons. The first is Congress enacted 524G. And well, when Congress, Congress, can't, <laughs> Congress can't go against the Constitution. No, that, that's right, Your Honor. But um, as the Supreme Court and other cases have held, Congress's uh, rearrangement of the economic relationship between actors uh, is subject to rational basis review. But the reason that's true is because the Constitution vests authority in Congress and Congress alone to make decisions about how to balance the countervailing policy interests and the heightened procedures in 524G, which, by the way, were not followed here, only underscore the extent to which Congress took seriously those constitutional concerns. Here, Congress has not acted. And so for the bankruptcy court to assert the authority to just copy-paste provisions that might be constitutional in the limited context of derivative claims in asbestos bankruptcies and say, well, we think that these provisions are good enough in this context for direct claims in non-asbestos bankruptcies, that's a key separation of powers problem. And nobody in this case has cited any authority for the bankruptcy court to craft remedies 
that is, you know, a power traditionally arrogated by the Constitution to Congress and Congress alone. I, I see my time has expired, but... If, if you... I just want to one short question, if I may. Is there any finding of fact made by Judge Drain that you think is clearly wrong? Yes, Your Honor. So if this court holds... Are they that... numbered? Can, can you do it by numbering to save us time? I'm sorry, Your Honor, I couldn't hear the second part of that. Could you identify them by their numbers just to save us time? Oh, I'm sorry, not off the top of my head, but I can tell you the categories. The first are uh, Judge Drain's findings with respect to the Metro Media Standard. So to the extent that the court believes that the Metro Media Standard controls, uh, which it does not, uh, Judge Drain made certain findings. Have you interpreted Metro Media? Oh, no, no, no. Uh, Judge Drain said... Metromedia adopted factors that a judge must find for a release to be approved. We disagree with that reading of Metromedia, but to the extent that this court agrees with Judge Drain that Metromedia controls, those findings are clearly erroneous for the reasons we set forth in our brief. Moreover, we disagree with Judge Drain's findings with respect to the constitutional issues. Judge Drain found, for example, that notice was sufficient but for the reasons set forth in our brief, the fact that the notice may have gone out to a lot of people does not mean that the quality of notice was sufficient to put those people on notice of what, what this plan was going to do. What it said as opposed to who saw it. Absolutely, Your Honor. Right. And so there, there are a number of other factual disputes that we raise in our brief related to, for example, the necessity of the uh, release to the plan and so on. So uh, please don't take the response from the podium as being the exclusive source of the disputes that we have with the findings of fact from the district court, uh, uh, from the bankruptcy court rather. But uh, the point is uh, there, there are several important disputes uh, that the trustee has set forth uh, with the reasoning of the district court's findings of fact. Okay. okay. All right. Are there other questions? Uh, thank you, Mr. Shi. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Shi. Uh, and uh, now we're ready for rebuttal from Mr. Hubner. Uh, Your Honor, one, one, Your Honors, one side of the SACRS, before I begin, just procedurally, sorry, I apologize. Um, one side of the SACRS has ceded their two minutes to me. They don't intend to speak. Um, okay. I think the other has not. So I think if it's okay, I have six minutes. That's okay. Okay, yes. okay that's fine. Yes, thank you. Your Honor, we just heard a great many things from the U.S. government that are extremely surprising, to say the least. I think most importantly, a lot of the argument you just heard assumes that 34 years of Second Circuit precedent is either illegal or unconstitutional, and that the majority of circuits in this country have been violating both the law and the Constitution for decades, none of which is true. Just, Rusty, to answer your first question, why was 524G needed? There's a very precise answer. The managing trustee of the Johns Manville Personal Injury Trust went to Congress and said, for every dollar the stock price goes up, the trust gets another $100 million. Can you please clarify to leave no doubt that the trusts are rock solid? And in light of that testimony, Congress agreed to pass a specific statute. Number two, Your Honor, with respect to inconsistency, which we heard a fair amount of argument now, let me remind the panel, if I may, that at page 64 of the government's brief, they concede it is their burden to prove inconsistency under Hardage, not ours. That burden most assuredly has not been carried. In response to many questions from this panel, they retreated, again, admitting time and time again that they actually could find no inconsistent provisions, but that it was a gestalt. 
So let's first talk about what the cases actually say. What Law v. Siegel, which he relied on, actually says is that 105, which is actually not the section implicated here, can violate the quote, quote, express terms, close quote, page 422, quote, explicit mandates, close quote, page 421, and quote, specific provisions, close quote, at page 421.22. Well, that's, that, that's no doubt true, but it also can't violate the due process clause of the Constitution of the United States. Your Honor, I, I agree completely, and, okay. and with, with that, let me turn to Jevic and energy resources. What Jevic said was that the destruction dismissal there, which was a permanent final disposition of the debtor's assets in radical violation of the priority conduct of the code, violated the code's, quote, first principle and most important and famous rule, close quote, and violated the procedures, quote, specified by the code. Jevic v. Siegel and Law, sorry, Law v. Siegel and Jevic support our side entirely. Your Honor, with respect to sovereign immunity for the Canadians, we'll largely rest on our papers except to say four very quick things. Number one, their class is uncertified. They represent less than 1% of the population of Canada. Number two, we settled with all of the provinces of Canada and did a huge carve-out of all Canadian claims and everyone else in Canada, including provinces representing the entire population, was satisfied. Three, in response to your questions, John, there was no answer. Section 106 for 18 years has been found by every court to ever have reached the issue to trump the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. And, as he admitted upon questioning, but not quite, your, this court's own decision, Philip Constructors, expressly says, you file a claim, you quote, necessarily submit to the bankruptcy court's equitable power. That's at page 707. To hear and represent to this panel that their claims are unrelated to the debtors is completely shocking, given what his brief actually says. And I quote at page 62, the claims are, quote, based in part on allegations that the Sapplers acted through the debtors, using them as an instrumentality to commit Canadian fraud. Simply stated, they retain all their claims against Purdue Canada, just like everyone in Canada does. The only thing that is released are claims that relate to the debtors. Your Honor, with respect to the arguments made by the U.S. Trustee, let me tick them down very quickly. Number one, the authority to modify debtor-creditor relationships expressly lauded in energy resources sometimes, in rare cases, requires the resolution of third-party claims that are inextricably intertwined. That is not intuition. Those are the findings of fact of a trial court that heard 41 witnesses. And it's actually pretty amazing to hear the appellate expert from the DOJ testifying to this court about what he believes will happen. I'm not sure where the belief is from, because we had a trial. And here's what the undisputed findings of fact of the trial court were. The debtors would likely liquidate. Unsecured creditors would likely receive nothing instead of more than $6 billion, and insurance and indemnity claims would be massive. To hear him say, here's what we dispute factually, is unbelievable. The district court said in the middle of the appeal, the facts in this case are totally undisputed. Does anyone disagree? 
She actually said it twice, and there was no response. Connecticut was up at the podium at the time, which is why the district court opined, in her opinion, at page 81, footnote 54, no one has challenged any of the findings of fact. He wasn't there, and it's not true. She also said it on page 6. The bankruptcy court's facts are, quote, essentially unchallenged. That's not the trial court. That's the district court. Your Honor, on to some of the other questions that were asked. There is no inconsistency. You asked and asked and asked. And the Second Circuit, the Third Circuit, the Fourth Circuit, the Sixth Circuit, the Seventh Circuit, and the Eleventh Circuit have likewise found no inconsistency. Energy resources creates incredibly broad authority to modify credit relationships. Here's a little-known interesting fact. Energy resources, in fact, was kind of a third-party release case. You can't tell it from the Supreme Court's opinion, but I'll tell you what actually happened, because it's in the bankruptcy court opinions in the briefs. The officers, directors, the debtors wanted to settle with them, and they said pay money into the estate and facilitate the reorganization. And the, D, and the, and the D's and O's said, we'll only pay if you pay the IRS in the order we like that lets us off the hook for our responsible person liability under 6672. And the court put it in the plan. And then the IRS said, are you insane? You're going to order the IRS over its objection in what order to apply the debtor's tax payments to benefit officers and directors who paid money into a bankruptcy estate? And guess what the Supreme Court said? They said yes. And that's why both Aerodyne in the Seventh Circuit and Dow Corning in the Sixth Circuit expressly rely on energy resources for third-party releases. This court created the whole doctrine before 524G was enacted because the world needed it. And virtually everyone has adopted it because when you get to mass torts like this, the money for the victims is often up at the parent companies. Your Honor, another factual finding that clearly counsel was unaware of is that Judge Drain found as a matter of fact that more discovery was provided in this case than any case he has seen in his, I think he said, 34 years as a lawyer and judge, and more than the Sacklers would have provided had they been in Chapter 11. Another fact that he appears not to know is that the majority of the Sacklers' wealth is not in their own name. It's in trusts, many overseas, that are not bankruptcy eligible. So the fantasy in their brief, which is nowhere supported by the record and is in derogation of an extensive trial with 41 witnesses, is that we got more discovery, more money, and more transparency than any other. Your Honor, Judge West, the U.S. several times about fraud, and I will be very upfront about it. Are claims for fraud released? Yes. That's what they're paying five and a half to six billion dollars to the joint creditors, because that was your copy with the PIs. It's all joint creditors. You have to be a claimant against Purdue, or your claim against the Sacklers is not released. And that's why the Canadian carve-out worked with the real representatives of Canadians' population. Because if they have claims directly against Purdue Canada... Let me ask you a question. If, 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 uh, if someone who has a claim against Purdue also has a claim because one of the 
Sacklers, unfortunately, crossed the center line and struck them. So they have a, a, it's a completely different separate tort. But they have a claim against Purdue also. Is that claim, the, the personal injury claim released? The answer, Your Honor, I think is no. And that's the point. The, the original use of derivative in Manville 1, and this is why it is a little bit analytically confusing, is derived from the conduct of the debtors. Our releases are tied exclusively to opioids and to the debtors. Yeah, that's the, the one injury theory that And the to the debtors' start. conduct. And in fact, the idea, the fact patterns were engaged. Again, counsel wasn't, just wasn't there at the time. There were extensive colloquies before both the bankruptcy court and the district court ensuring a fact pattern much that's tougher than yours, which is... That's why Drain amended it 10.7 to say legally relevant. Exactly, Your Honor. And it already only limited opioid claims. And the example was exactly that one, which in fact... Strangely enough, in Judge McMahon's prior decisions that came out exactly the other way, if you read her Kirwan decision, it cites about 140 cases and comes out the other way on every single issue from her decision here. She went to that exact fact pattern in Kirwan and Carta and narrowed the releases, as Judge Drain did also, to be 100% sure, not only your fact pattern, Your Honor, but a closer one. What if Susie Sackler, that was Judge McMahon's phrase. I can't, I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you. What'd you say? What Judge McMahon asked in the hearing was, what if Susie Sackler sold Oxy to her roommate out of her dorm room? Is the mere fact that it's Oxy, so you could say it's Purdue? Answer, not within the ambit of the releases, because it doesn't involve the debtor's conduct, and it's not a legally relevant cause. Your Honor, just a couple of final points, because the U.S. trustee said so, so many things that are troubling. Um, Judge Lee, in response to your question about the rule of construction, I'm not sure where the gloss on the rule of construction came from, but it is totally clear on its face that it forbids exactly the 524G analysis. If you look at the Supreme Court decision in Verizon, the Supreme Court literally said, I want to find X. It's clearly the right answer under the statute, but the rule of construction there, which was identically worded, bars me. Here, there's no reason to want to find anything they're asking for, because it will result in the death and suffering of thousands of people and the destruction of a plan that every creditor in this case worked for years to build to ensure a life-saving outcome. Your Honor, just one final thing, if I may. Um, We also heard some testimony about the fact that he doesn't believe or is not sure that the claims are intertwined. Not one, but two judges already found that to be untrue. Judge McMahon's prior decision in Dunaway, which was about the earlier, about the preliminary injunction, expressly addressed this. Judge McMahon's decision below on appeal expressly found the claims congruent, her words, and totally intertwined. And Judge Drain surveyed the complaints and actually found as a matter of fact that the claims were intertwined and inseparable. And, Your Honors, that's the whole point. It's not only that we would lose billions of claims against the Sacklers in this fire tornado of thousands of litigations where we're competing against our own creditors for years to recover from the Sacklers. It's not only that the 24 intercreditor deals that obviated years of fighting among creditors about who is entitled to what, 
It's not only that our insurance, which now is 100% ours, to get and give to innocent victims and save lives, would instead be in a war with the Sacklers, who have dozens of entities that are beneficiaries. It's actually the estate itself, even the companies, couldn't survive the firestorm. And so the debtor's conduct is always at the core. The debtor's very reorganization is at the core. Judge Newman asked counsel, what is the alternative? The answer was an appellate lawyer saying, you know, like, maybe we could all litigate for a long time and it would be a better outcome. There is a trial about this. They are not an economic party. They don't die if they don't get funds for abatement and remediation. But the clients of everyone else in this courtroom is at risk of doing exactly that. Four years of my life have been devoted to doing the best I can for the victims of Purdue to get them the most money for abatement and victims to save lives. The notion that we should gamble that an alternative that two estate fiduciaries and 11 groups spent years exploring every pathway because they think it sort of might violate their vision of a gestalt of the code because they have some generic cases that say normally bankruptcy is about the debtor is an insult to 34 years of Second Circuit precedent as well as the victims in this case. Okay. Uh, Your Honor, I think I will leave it at that unless the panel has questions. Thank you, Mr. Huber. Um, I believe there's still one appellant who has not argued yet. That's a hard act to follow, and I won't take long. Maura Monahan on behalf of the Mortimer side, initial covered Sackler parties. I just wanted to address one discrete point that Judge Lee had raised, which I think went to the question of what the Sackler's role was at Purdue at the time that these releases and contributions were negotiated, because it would be troubling if a party got to be on both sides of that transaction and, in fact, determine their own fate. And I wanted to note that that was absolutely not the case. The last Sackler left the board of Purdue long before Purdue filed for Chapter 11. Judge Drain actually appointed an independent examiner to look at the question of whether the Sacklers had exerted any influence over Purdue in the arm's length negotiations and concluded that they didn't. These negotiations were overseen by eminent mediators who had a very strong view to answer Judge Newman's question, it certainly was not the Sacklers' opening bid by any means that ended up being the amount. And then, of course, it was all subject to a very thorough scrutiny by the court at the confirmation hearing. So that's all I wanted to say, just to make sure that was clear. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Your Honors. And so I think we've covered all the parties now. Um, Thank you, everyone, for, for your arguments today. Uh, and thank you to all of our court staff for uh, making everything run smoothly. Uh, with that, we'll, uh, take that, we'll take it under advisement, and I'll ask the 